0: on this uh, Monday morning, the 19th of April, maybe the um, saddest picture I saw over the weekend was the photograph of the Queen of England sitting all by herself, right? She's the only person actually in the field of view of the camera, I mean, from a particular angle, sitting alone at the funeral of her beloved husband of 73 years, Prince Philip. And so lots of folks, you know, asking, you know, why did the queen have to sit all by herself? Well, though the United Kingdom has set a roadmap out of lockdown in England, restrictions remain for funeral services across the country. And so there's a maximum of 30 people allowed to attend. And that's why Prince Philip's funeral was capped at 30 people. Um, Over the past year, the, um, you know, the coronavirus has robbed Families around the world um, of the chance to properly grieve and and for us to gather together with one another and support one another in those times of of loss. And so funerals have been in some cases not held at all. In other cases, uh, held you know virtually, Um, and and then you know in cases like this where you know you can have thirty people present, but they're going to be required to be socially distanced. To reduce the risk of um, of the coronavirus spreading, so I want us to consider this particular event um, because it, it, it's a public event because this is such a public figure and this is such a public family, um, but it's an intensely private event, and there was um, I almost felt voyeuristic in looking at the queen sitting by herself grieving during her husband's funeral. And I wonder how you felt. Um, and I wonder the conversations that we might have about grief and shared grief and the reality that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Um, I wonder what kinds of conversations we might have about the witness of a 73-year marriage, their marriage fidelity, the very real love they, they shared for one another, their commitment not only to one another and to their family, but to the service of their country. I wonder if um, you were, I don't know, maybe intrigued by the witness of the reunion of brothers and the way that um, shared grief helps us overcome differences in other parts of our life. I wonder if you found a witness in this royal family living in this moment just like every other family in their own country and around the world. And I wonder if you've given much consideration to the reality that though she is the queen and arguably the most powerful woman in the world, um, that she's also now a widow and that God has a special place in his heart and that the church has a special role in responding. I'm hoping that when you... Um, when you see a picture, when you see a scene unfolding, when you hear one part or get one part of the storyline, a thread, that you pause for a moment and you consider not just the worldview implications and the way that you might uh, talk about it in terms of bringing God back into the conversations of the day, but that you might pause and consider the humanity of the individual in the middle of the picture. And so I'm just going to hold the Queen of England in my heart today and in my mind and in my mind's eye as I consider the grief of one woman sitting all by herself at the funeral of her husband. We're going to turn to other COVID headlines next with Dr. Zach Jenkins. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Six, it's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, 98. All right, joining me uh, again today, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Um, we are talking about all things COVID. Um, Zach, remind people, um, in addition to teaching at Cedarville, the other, some of the other hats that you wear in relationship to this conversation.
2: Yeah, so I have been on the coronavirus uh, response task force within the Dayton, Ohio region as far as my healthcare system is concerned. So I've been basically uh, helping people decide how we're going to treat patients who are admitted to the hospital with COVID. That's, that's my big hat I wear there. And then I actively am involved with uh, helping to manage the care of the patients once they're admitted to the hospital. So... That, that I guess those are my two like treatment related hats I've been wearing.
0: Yeah, and I just think it's helpful because we, you know, there are at least some of us who live in places where I don't want to say we feel insulated from what is happening. When we talk about these rising numbers again, I know that in Ohio um, there's there's a surge of cases. I, I was noting a, an article about what's happening in one particular county. Um, And and yet some of us live in places where, frankly, life has gotten pretty much back to normal. And and then we still read headlines where, you know, like Oregon is weighing mandating COVID restrictions indefinitely. So there's just such a range of response across the country. And I just think it's helpful for folks to know your context um, because you are still actively seeing patients. And I guess maybe just give us a window into um, what you're seeing in your own community and in your state.
2: Yeah, so so we actually had a downturn in the number of cases we were seeing uh, about three weeks ago, and then spring break happened, Um, and and, uh, the other things that were happening around us is a lot of the states, and and us included, we were opening up some of our restrictions that were in place, and not that everyone was, like, jumping out and getting involved with, with things in an inappropriate way or something along those lines, but... What we did see as a result of that is an uptick in cases. I mean, cases tend to start ticking up about two weeks after some of these sentinel events, we'll say. And right now, what we're really seeing is a big trickling down of cases from Michigan. And in our area, they seem to be hit very hard at the moment. So probably in a week or two, we're going to be uh, slammed. We we tend to follow them. At least that's what the patterns have shown so far.
0: Okay, so um, let's talk about... Uh half of of all U.S. adults have received at least one COVID vaccination dose, um, but we are seeing uh, a rise in cases related to the U.K. variant and a pause in um, in J&J vaccines and questions about AstraZeneca. Like, there's just so much going on out there. So let's start with um, the U.K. variant. What do we need to know about it?
2: Well, uh, there are a few different things. So first off, we're, we're not alone in the fact that we're seeing an increase in cases lately. It's about 38 states in the country that are reporting that. The big question is how much are how much is really due to the original strain that was dominant in the US versus how much may be due to these variants. So right now, the estimates are suggesting it's about half of the cases that are due to the UK variant, half of the new cases. Um, so it's kind of important to take a look at that. I would say the the evidence is showing thus far, and there have been a couple of studies that have come out about this there does not seem to be an increased risk of severity of illness or worse outcomes with the uk variant and there was some speculation that there might be but it hasn't really played out Um, but what we do know for sure is that it is more transmissible because of the mutation that does have so it seems to be somewhere between uh 40 to 70 percent or what some of the estimates suggest as far as an increase in transmissibility so you're going to see probably a larger increase in the number of cases relative to that one virus compared to another virus. Um, The other thing to consider, too, is that there doesn't seem to be any increased risk of reinfection if you've had this virus. And who we're seeing this the most in right now are those under the age of 50. Part of the reason behind that is probably because the vaccines that we have in circulation have largely been used by people over the age of 50 so far. Um so, mm-hmm. so, there is some protection offered by these vaccines,
0: okay. we're going to talk about um vaccines right after a very brief break. I am talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins. He tweets at farm like not like a farm like I live on, but like farm like short for pharmacy. farm d hiker. We'll be right back. All right, continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We are talking about COVID headlines. Um, Zach, I feel obligated to interrupt our conversation with some breaking news. Can I do that? All right, Mm -hmm. I never do this on the show. But NASA has just confirmed, like in the last couple of minutes, NASA has just confirmed the historic success of a helicopter flight on Mars. So that's it. That's the... That's the headline, and I just felt like that's breaking news that we should share. There you go. There'll be more about that later today, I'm sure. That's kind of cool, really though.
2: interesting. Yeah. I know.
0: In in cool things that people have done, um, coming up with a vaccine, actually several of them, for a brand new virus globally um, to combat a pandemic. This is actually, I think, when, when the coronavirus goes down in history, it's going to go down in history for a number of things. Um, obviously, the number of people who lost their lives in relationship to it and the dramatic impact and effect it's had globally on our economy and education and other things. But another storyline that's going to be told is going to be the vaccination storyline. The The fact that globally we, will, we were able to ramp up in so many places and spaces and in a fairly non-competitive way, come up with real vaccines that really work against a real virus. So talk with us about what's going on. Um, you know, Pick your, pick your vaccine story and, uh, and let us hear about it.
2: So this is an important one, but it's kind of brief. So the Chinese vaccine, they've actually found to not be really effective at all. And, and so some of the uh, developing nations that have been using it have actually seen it not work in their population. And and China's even come out with a statement to say they need to retool their entire vaccine to make it work. Hmm. So China's for, for once has been transparent about that. Um so that that I think is a really interesting thing when you consider the impact that that may have, because some of these developing nations, it's really hard to get these vaccines around to their population. The AstraZeneca vaccine, which was developed in Europe, that, that one was actually another one that held a lot of promise for these developing countries because of how you could store it. And, and uh, people felt that it was going to make a big impact there. But as we've talked about, I think a couple of weeks ago, the vaccine itself was associated with some blood clots in Europe and they ended up temporarily shutting down distribution of it in several several major countries within Europe so they could pause and take a look at the data. They've since come out with some statements and there's a study that just came out on this too uh, where they looked at the overall risk. And so of the people that have received a vaccine, and I believe there's about thirty four million that have received the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe, about eleven in a million will actually go on to develop serious harm of some sort from that vaccine. It's 11 in a million. And that is in those that are ages uh, 25 to 55. But those that are above the age of 55, it's only about four in a million. So it Hmm. sounds like as, as we age a little bit, this clotting risk may be much, much less in our older populations. And it seems to be predominantly in women. But again, it's 11 in a million. That's one one hundred thousandth of a percent. So it's it's pretty low, all things considered, but something that's certainly worth paying attention to. But to put it in perspective, um, your your risk of dying overall from a motor vehicle accident is about 38 in a million. Your mm. risk of being hit by lightning is one in a million. So not to say it's something we shouldn't be cautious of. Again, I think we, sh- we need to pay attention to that kind of thing. It's the same story with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine with these clots as a risk. We have to kind of ask, well, who's this vaccine going to be the most ideal? And is it going to be young women, women with a high risk of blood clotting? Probably not. But is it going to be in, an older individual? That would make a lot more sense. And that's kind of the approach they've taken in Europe with the AstraZeneca vaccine. They sort of delegated it to be used in that population.
0: Okay, so let's um, let's also talk about the um, the J&J pause and then maybe potentially the restart restrictions, cautions. Um, And then let's talk about the Pfizer vaccine and the South African strain of covid. Which one of those stories you want to tackle next?
2: You know, I I think it makes sense to transition into the Johnson and Johnson discussion. Great. Yeah. So so. What happened is we had about six rare blood clots that we're seeing of about the 6.8 million doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that we administered. So six clots in that population, and they were all in women ages 18 to 48. Mm. Um, so they're all basically premenopausal, and that's kind of an important takeaway. Uh, we know that premenopausal women are at a slightly higher risk of blood clots in general. um And one thing we always have to take—we have to think about is So they've stopped. See, this, I feel like that. I feel ahead.
0: like I feel like we should pause there. And that should be good news for the menopausal women. There you go. We needed one good. <laughs> it's good to be postmenopausal today for this reason. There you go. That's it, Zach. I'm not going to make you comment on that. I'm just going to little go. shout out go. to my friends. There you go.
2: Uh, but but I think that the important takeaway there is we have to also consider: are there other things present when we hear about whatever side effect gets reported that may either predispose someone to that or may actually be the direct cause of it, and it may not be the vaccine. So that's something they have to look at with the data, and they have to do some statistical analyses to look at whether it's an independent risk, whether that vaccine is making that independent risk, or it's a contributing risk. There's a difference between those. So a good example in this case, those 18 to 48-year-old women, there's a good chance that someone in that group is receiving an oral birth control agent. And mm-hmm. oral birth control agents have a clotting risk associated with them. It's about one in a thousand patients that Which ha- is pretty that, high. That end up developing okay. a clot. So it's very high.
0: I mean, one in a thousand is how many in a million? Math is not my thing.
2: Oh, it's, a it's lot. like lot. Yeah, it's like a thousand in a million or so.
0: Yeah, it's a thousand in a million. And so we're talking about um, clotting risk factors related to these vaccines that are maybe six in a million, eight in a million- and with birth control, with oral birth control, the clotting risk is a thousand in a million. That's a lot. That's really high by comparison.
2: It is. And so, you know, in, in this example, you have to think about, like, is that really what may have been the cause and we just happen to have a chance finding? Or right. or did these things add together? And, and you could truly mm-hmm. say this is like an independent risk factor. So that's something I have to look at. And I, I believe there probably is some association, just to be transparent. Um, but- I don't think it's going to be anything that's insanely insanely high. Your, your risk of actually having a blood clot from COVID that's the same kind, the, the ones that are affecting the brain, which is what they saw here, is 39 in a million if you have COVID at any age. Mm. So just to put it in perspective again, you've got at least the AstraZeneca data, it's 11 a million, it's 6 in 6.8 million here versus 39 in a million for COVID. So... I think we sometimes we hear this stuff and it gets uh, blown out of proportion by the media or by things getting tossed around on social media. And there's certainly things we have to watch and things we have to be intentional about addressing. But we we can't jump at shadows all the time.
0: Okay, so um, let's talk. Let's take a couple of minutes to talk about um, the South African strain of covid, which is now not confined to South Africa. Um, and the uh, efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine, which leads us, I think, into a conversation about um, adjusting and testing, I don't know, new versions of these mRNA vaccines.
2: So we've been talking for a while about variants and they have been used in a lot of countries right now. We've seen some real world data with these vaccines as as far as like how effective are they? And we know that Moderna and Pfizer do still have some efficacy against all of the variants in question, but the one that we probably need to pay the most attention to that doesn't get talked about quite as much is the South African variant. And it's only because we seem to have the biggest reduction in efficacy against that virus. It's not that it doesn't work, it's just not going to be above 90% like we've seen up until now with these mRNA vaccines. And so both Moderna and Pfizer are taking a pretty close look at developing a booster shot to add to people who've had the two doses, or they're developing a new shot that has the extra strain for people that are kind of getting their first doses of the vaccine. So they wouldn't have to have three shots at that point. Um, So the plan right now, and they're doing the studies at the moment to see whether or not these are going to be effective. The plan right now is probably by this fall, something would be available to help address that potential variant and any other variants of concern that may spring up between now and the fall.
0: All right. So can I just make a comment as a just, you know, like regular person? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like like, you know, five or six years from now, the question is going to be asked, Okay, so which which version of the Pfizer vaccine did you have? Like, did you have the first one? Did you have the one that was booster? Did you have the one? And I got to tell you, people aren't going to remember all that. Like, I, I think that part of the challenge that we're going to face as a culture is some people have had this one or that one or the next one or a variety or maybe they got the first shot and did never get the second shot or they got the two, but they can't remember if it was Moderna or Pfizer. And I just I am just like looking into the future and anticipating a lot of confusion related to this. So that, I would just put that on your list of like things to talk with your pals about.
2: Oh, no, there's definitely some issues around that. But if you think about it, there are other vaccines in use right now that are about three different doses. And and so this is for other disease states that aren't COVID. And and people know that like you have a certain schedule that you get a vaccine within, right? So like Mm -hmm. if you get the one dose, maybe your next dose is a year later or something along those lines. It's going to be similar here. And there's some sometimes there's some other vaccines out there that would kind of push you further along that schedule we may see kind of a similar approach with how things get tracked with this vaccine in the future. So that, that might be one of those things where you go to your, your doctor and then they'll say, okay, well now, which one did you get? Okay. You had this one. Well, that means you would be due for X, Y, and Z or, Oh, mm-hmm. well you have the whole regimen now. You don't have to worry about that.
0: Yeah. Which I just think highlights again, the need to actually have a relationship with a real doctor. Mm-hmm.
1: There you go. Absolutely. That'll be my,
0: mm-hmm. all right, uh, everybody uh, be sure you, you know, I don't know, touch base with your primary care physician at some point just seems like a good idea. All right, Dr. Zach Jenkins, as always, thank you so much. We did not get to the conversation about exercise and COVID, but suffice it to say, everyone should be exercising. There you go. Yep. That's my, uh, <laughs> that's my encouragement for the day. Zach, have a blessed week.
2: All right, you can do the same.
0: Thanks. We'll be right back. Okay, yes, I love and appreciate all of the input. Uh, Listeners paying such close attention and giving such good feedback on the text line. You can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. Joe saying, hey, um, people are going to have an immunization card. They don't have to keep up with their own information, right? That immunization card has all the information on it that you're going to need to present in years ahead. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. You are right. My concern is people keeping up with something that amounts to basically a little white piece of paper. I mean, if you haven't gotten one yet, it's basically a little white piece of paper with black writing. There's nothing distinctive about it at all. You get these stickers on it, and yes, there um, there is information on those stickers about the actual vaccine that you received. However, the sticker contains something. I don't exactly know what it is. That means that if you go to get your card laminated, the entire thing turns black. If you laminate it, so it's unreadable, it's illegible, and you then you can't use it. So you have to make a copy before you get your card laminated. However, you can't present a copy as the actual thing because it won't scan as legitimate. So we're going to have a challenge going forward for people who don't keep up with the little piece of paper version of their vaccination card that has the actual stickers on it versus keeping up with a laminated toppy of your card, you see the challenge, right? It's going to be a challenge. I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be a challenge. Um, Forgeries is already a big business in terms of COVID vaccine, vaccination cards as well. That's another storyline, you know, but we can't get to everything. All right. um, Did I tell you we landed a helicopter on Mars today? I don't know. We flew a helicopter on Mars today. NASA has announced the Ingenuity helicopter has flown on Mars in the first controlled flight on another planet. I don't know. That is really cool. Um, all right. Next up, Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We're going to talk about the progressive push for court packing. That's a Supreme Court headline. We'll be right back.
2: Are you having a tough time connecting with your team? Hi, I'm Martin Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Your son or daughter is communicating with people all the time with text and IM and Facebook. But my question is this. Are you connecting with your team? Take the initiative to spend time with your child, to engage in a way that goes deeper than their mobile device. Don't wait for them to pursue you. It may never happen. Take the initiative. Make a date to have a conversation, the time to spend together, though it won't always seem like it's profound or life-changing. It will have a lasting, positive impact. So make it happen. Today, choose to connect
1: with your team. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Again, parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: All right, joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Welcome back, sir.
1: Glad to be back. Thanks for having me again.
0: Okay, I am going to set the ball on the tee, and then I am going to let you do with it what you will. The topic of the conversation this morning is court packing. That's All it. Right. The ball, The ball is set on the tee.
1: <laughs> well, uh, obviously, this was a priority for the left after the frustration they had with the three justices that – President Trump had put on the Supreme Court and various circumstances surrounding each one. Uh, I think a lot of people paying attention know what that looks like. But uh, what's been interesting is that they that that I think a lot of cold water has been poured on it in the last two weeks, as far as whether um, Nancy Pelosi in Congress, Joe Biden in the presidency, and even some more uh, Democratic appointed members of the Supreme Court like Stephen Breyer, whether any of them are going to lift much of a finger to pack the court and and to try to add justices of the Supreme Court to change the composition of it. And I think what's interesting about this is it is showing some of the limits of the degree to which the uh, political left even is able to control the Democratic Party. There's a lot of talk about it taking it over, and that may be in the process of happening. But it also, I think, shows that I think at least a decent number of Americans want a understand something about what courts should be doing the courts aren't meant to be partisan bodies that just do what you would like a congressman to do or you as a voter to do. They want to keep the court the way it is because they see it as an institution that apply, that is supposed to apply the law as written. And to do so, they need a bit of independence and throwing extra members on the court when you have your own majority in Congress or the presidency seems like a, a something that that Americans, even in our highly partisan times, see as a bridge too far. And I think the fact that Joe Biden formed a commission rather than making a actual uh, a proposal to Congress to expand the court, the fact that Nancy Pelosi refused to bring a bill that her Judiciary Committee had had written that would have expanded the court and the fact that Stephen Breyer, a current member of the Supreme Court recently spent a long speech at Harvard saying, don't do it, I, I, I think shows that as much as some people are getting really worked up over this issue, it seems pretty pretty uh, like a non-starter at this point. And I think that's a good thing. It shows that there are some limits to where our partisanship right now is in compared to our thinking as citizens and, co- and constitutional beings.
0: All right. So a guy named Adam Carrington has a really good piece uh, in The American Spectator that people can read at spectator.org, Why the Left is Wrong to Attack Justice Breyer on Court Packing. He understands the constitutional genius of institutional restraint. If you guys want to read that, you go to spectator.org. Adam Carrington is the author of that piece. Um, Adam, I think that one of the um, one of the values of of conversations like this taking place nationally is that it provokes us to think about why things are the way they are and whether or not things are the way at this point in history they should be times have changed like there are some legitimate conversations to be having about um let's say um term limits um or the number what you know is there a magic number and if there if if it was 9 at one point in time is it still 9 Partisan debates aside, are there some reasonable conversations we might be having about the constituency of the Supreme Court and the limits, the potential term limits of justices?
1: Yes. And I think it's right to say that on one level, think you can think partisanly, you can think your side has the better vision for the country. But on the other hand, the Constitution is supposed to be and a set of laws for any government is supposed to be the common context in which we have those discussions. And I think with 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 reforms to the court, n- one thing to keep in mind in defense of the court packers is the Constitution says nothing about the size of the Supreme Court. That is set by Congress and the president by law. I think that the bigger problem right now is is the reasons why it's being done seem so bald-facedly partisan but you're right it, you can set those aside to ask is it smart to have 9 eight, 80 some to 90 year olds on the supreme court would there be something like an upper age limit that we could consider or would that be problematic the number of the court i think would more be a question could we did do we find that there that, for example, there's not enough justices to to do all the 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 cases that come up. In other words, is the Supreme Court not taking enough cases? And is that because their workload is too much for their size? Or do we think that they're doing too much and that therefore fewer would be an advantageous? I think having those conversations are legitimate. I don't see a lot of evidence for, for needing to change the composition of the court on those grounds at this point, but those are the questions we should be asking. And I think actually the question of, whether uh people whether there shouldn't be some other mechanism for removing justices when maybe their their abilities flag i think is actually a more legitimate question than the the question of even the size of it at this point
0: all right you and i uh both read an article in the new york times by um ross Douthit, and um it's about biden and trump populism or maybe Biden seeking to co opt Trump's populism. So when we come back, can we talk about a little bit about that?
1: Sure thing. Yes.
0: All right. Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, possibly why President Biden is doing things the way that he's doing them, why in some cases he seeks to uh, use the legislature and in other cases, um, you know, creates a commission or uh, or signs an executive order. What might be behind that? Uh, that conversation up next from Mornings with Carmen. We're going down to the river,
1: down to the river, down to the river to pray, yeah, yeah.
0: Let's get All right. The New York Times is running some very interesting opinion pieces of late. Um, one uh, is by a Christian who um, acknowledges that um, they feel betrayed by Biden's failure to take the action promised on refugee uh, numbers. But the one that I'm going to highlight here with Adam Carrington right now is an opinion piece by Russ Douth- Ross Douthat, um, whom we have featured before. This piece is called What Bidenism Owes to Trumpism. The Biden agenda tries to seize the populist opportunity that Trump let slip away. Now, um, for those who, you know, only want to key in on the fact that um, that Ross Douthit thinks that Trump Let an opportunity slip away. Don't focus on that. Focus with us on what Ross is trying to say or trying to uh, maybe point out about the internecine fightings among Democrats and whether or not um, true liberalism, historic liberalism, has actually maybe already seen its day. That's sort of what I got out of it. Did I miss the point?
1: Uh, no i don't think so, and I think another thing for those who who are, are 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 big supporters of of President Trump is to say that I think one point of the article is that that what Biden would never admit it, but tipping his hat that there were some things that President Trump brought up that were not will that shouldn't be outright rejected that if you really think of trumpism, if you can define it as policy so not as you know tweets or a certain disposition or other things but uh as far as what he he wanted to get as, as far as things that they actually tried to get done they have a you know a tougher stance on china ending overseas conflicts stop pushing what the GOP had for a while, uh, reforms of social entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, priority on American workers, uh, blue collar workers, especially and their families. And if you think, you know, yes, Biden has done a number of left leaning things, especially on executive orders and such. But if you look at the covid relief bill, it had a big child tax credit in it. He's talked much tougher on China now than he did as VP. We'll have to see if action comes. He, he's pushing for an infrastructure bill, which President Trump had pushed for, with an emphasis on American workers and American construction workers being a part of it. And he's pulling the troops out of Afghanistan, he's just announced. And so the question would be, again, why do that? And to some degree, I think, like you were saying, Biden, to some degree, because he's almost 80, is a throwback to an older liberalism that even Trump at one point was a part of that prioritized these things more than the new left. Uh, At the same time, I think the Democrat, he uh, Biden as a Democrat sees that. Blue-collar workers are really important to winning elections, and you actually have to take some of their concerns seriously. So I, I, I think that those that – it, it sh- it's really interesting that sometimes the, 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 hat, the hat tip you pay to your opponent isn't by saying so but why, by what you do. And I think as you said too, it brings up some interesting questions. As Biden seems to be trying to do this, is it sustainable? Is the democratic party in the in its current trajectory going to go along with him for now they They're looking at him as kind of a new f d r bringing in a new you know great de- uh, a, a new new deal or a new lbj like a a new great society uh, and so they see him as kind of a liberal lie in that way but what but i think the, the 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 emphasis of the left more on issues that are are not commiserate with blue collar uh priorities i i think that is where you're going to see are they going to get tired of this are they going to not stay with him uh, I think it's a risky move by Biden but it's also a recognition that America really isn't where the far left is right now and and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's spend the um let's spend a couple of minutes talking about this um this 6th circuit decision in Ohio. Tell people what this case is about. We have not covered this yet.
1: Yes, so the 6th circuit had had taken up an Ohio law, and the Ohio law said that if an abortion doctor knows finds out that a woman is wanting to have an abortion for the purpose of taking the life of a Down syndrome baby she finds out that her child has Down syndrome or is likely to, and that 's why she wants to have an abortion the The doctor can 't do the abortion; he is banned from it and could face jail time could face other other losing his license. And the, uh, the 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 originally the courts the lower courts had struck this down and said this is stopping women's right under Roe and under Casey and other abortion precedents. The entire Sixth Circuit uh, uh, all got together, so six I think it was sixteen or seventeen justices, and heard the case together, which doesn't happen real often. And by a nine to seven vote, they upheld the regulation. And I think that, you know, a lot of pro-lifers might be looking at what I just said and said, well, that's a really small thing. It's not a massive ban on on that protects the unborn. But it's any time right now that lower courts feel they can uphold an abortion regulation that protects the unborn at least a little bit. That's big news. And might be the vehicle that goes up to the Supreme Court that allows the lower courts to maybe be more protective of the unborn. And the other thing is, I think the way it really was defended was trying to say that um, d- the disabled community, and particularly the Down syndrome community, is is really rife to be seen by to uh, be uh, seen and treated as less. Uh, having less dignity and less of the right to life than other people. And that this was an attempt by the state of Ohio to really say, no, we believe that uh, they are fully part of our broader political community. They're fully part of the human community and trying to at least stake out some ground on that. So I think uh, as far as practical purposes, it's a it's a it's a little step in the right direction. And we'll see if it might trigger some 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 more happenings, maybe even up at the Supreme Court, because I don't think we're done with hearing about this law as far as the courts go.
0: Uh, it occurs to me that, I mean, I mean, just last night I saw an advertisement for a financial planning uh, firm. I can't remember which one, but the the storyline was, you know, this couple has this son who's graduating from high school. He has Down syndrome and he's going on, um, you know, into his work life. And at each point along the path, their financial planner, right, is helping them make sure that not only are they secure, but his future is secure as well. It's a beautiful sort of like testimony advertisement. Um, And it ends with him, you know, going off to his first day of work and the parents talking about, you know, what's going to be required for them in retirement to ensure that he has a future um, as well. I think that the ad campaign of Oshkosh that featured a Down syndrome child, I think that, you know, Target being publicly praised for featuring Down syndrome children in their advertising. I think that culturally, this is a really, I mean, if we talk about cases that are like culturally ripe, this case is not maybe only ripe in terms of the law this case is ripe in terms of the way people in the culture feel about people with Down syndrome. Like, it is something that we have encountered enough and understand well enough and have people in our churches and in our communities um, who are joyful, lovely, wonderful people who happen to have this particular genetic um, trait. And so I think this one is going to be a really interesting one to watch. And I guess I hope the Supreme Court takes it up.
1: Yeah, and I think that that when cultural and legal things can work together, uh, they're they're powerful ways of supporting each other. And so to have a communal support for this and also be able to have more leeway to enshrine these things in law. And I think another thing this protects that I'll just mention real quick is is by by limiting the conversations that abortion doctors can have with women about this, it also stops the pressure, the peer pressure, or not only peer, the expertise pressure that often gets placed on women in really tough situations and gives more space for them to consider uh, the preciousness of the life that that, that they're holding at that point.
0: Amen. Hey, Dr. Adam Carrington, thank you as always for joining us. You guys can find Adam on Twitter. He tweets at Carrington AM. We'll be right back. All right. I don't know. I'm kind of excited that uh, NASA flew a helicopter on Mars. Are you, are you as jazzed about this as I am? I'm um, pretty geeked is, out. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. Right? Here, here's here's what I've learned, Paul. It took they had to wait three hours because because news had to travel 178 million miles back to them mm-hmm. to verify that the that it actually worked. So three hours seems like a long time to wait, but it's not a long time to wait for news from Mars. No? I don't that. know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe we should I go on the, the Martian uh, news cycle. I think it's better. We live,
0: we live in a very cool—yeah, that actually would be good. Like, wait three hours before we report something, in many cases. That there might be go. helpful. We'd probably know a lot more details. Um, all right, we um, we love being with you. Thank you for joining us today. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. It's basically the Gospel Coalition hour. I think that's the, what I'm going to call the next hour here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.